welcome to episode 28 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music can give us a reason to live, but can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. Lots of great feedback on our most recent poll question, which was suggested by listener John Solituro, which was, what is an album you didn't like or even hated, only to come back to it years later and find that you really loved it? Especially if it's an artist that you generally really like a lot, who released one album you just didn't care for, only to have it blow your mind years later. I won't read all the responses because there are too many, but I'll read a few select ones. I didn't think any album would get more than one vote, given how personal and specific this question was, but three of you mentioned Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind. I don't know, that one struck me right away, but I can see how it could be a grower. Uh, Alexander says about that album that he was a teenager when it came out, and he thought it was the dreariest sounding album he'd ever heard. But now, as a world-weary adult, it's his favorite Dylan album. Now, there may be something to needing that time, I think. There are definitely albums that I think might require a certain amount of life experience to fully understand or enjoy. Seth says that prior to the pandemic, he just never got Eno's Another Green World. He says this is largely because the pop songs weren't as strong as those on Taking Tiger Mountain, Here Come the Warm Jets, or Before and After Science, and the more subdued pieces never carried the same weight as music for airports or on land. But early in the pandemic, it finally clicked, and he listened to it every morning during March and April of 2020. It felt both familiar and also fresh. Seth also says, maybe I unconsciously stopped comparing it to his other albums and just took it for what it was. Blame it on the pandemic, but I totally get it now and put it up there with my other favorites in his catalog. Seth, you're putting me on the spot a little here, because honestly, it never totally clicked for me either. I always imagined there was something about the record I was missing, that it was my problem and not the record's. This is a good time to mention the Eno record that I think is an overlooked masterpiece, because I'll take any opportunity to recommend it. And that's Another Day on Earth, which may be my favorite Eno record overall, or at least definitely my favorite song-oriented Eno record. And I think my wife Leah agrees, and she's probably the bigger Eno fan in this house. Uh, but I like what you said about unfairly judging it against the other albums in Eno's catalog, because I think that's a trap we all fall into, and many of the responses to this poll question sort of reflect this. I think it's why often your favorite album by an artist is the first one you hear. Like, my favorite Stereolab album will always be Emperor Tomato Ketchup, for instance. Uh, Peter cites Mercury Rev's Your Self-Esteem. He says, quote, I remember refunding the CD at my local record store as a young kid. After a few years, I listened back to Your Self-Esteem and totally fell in love. I still love it, and it's a go-to on a sunny day. I have a wonderful version on vinyl, which I cherish. Now, regular listeners here will know I'm a pretty big Rev stan, so I can't say I relate to not digging your self-esteem, but I'll offer a possibly controversial opinion and say, of the David Baker era, I actually prefer Bosies. Hmm. Joe Carver's example is R.E.M.'s Out of Time, which just so happens to be celebrating its 30th anniversary this month, I think. But he also cites Van Morrison's Hymns to the Silence and Joe Jackson's Laughter and Lust, neither of which I've ever heard, and uh, Elvis Costello's Brutal Youth, which I have not heard in 20 years. Now, Out of Time features my favorite R.E.M. song, which is Country Feedback, so I've always given its lesser tracks a pass, but I, I totally get it. Um, I think Radio Song, in the history of rock and roll records, may be one of the most baffling choices to open a record ever. 
Uh, I should stop now because this actually sounds like a pretty good future poll question. Uh, Thanks, Joe. Eben writes, Lou Reed and Metallica's Lulu. I reflexively hated Lulu when it came out and then was unexpectedly moved after seeing a video of them performing Junior Dad. There was something redemptive about Lou Reed giving Metallica the opportunity to share in art making or something. Anyhow, I'm not sure I find this album incredible necessarily, but it has moments and I'm still giving it time. Even Junior Dad was my skeleton key into that record too, and and though I'm still not 100% sure how I feel about it, I, I like that slippery, elusive quality in art and music, that feeling that I could experience a thing a hundred times and still not be able to exactly locate my own feelings about it. Because when you encounter works like this, you keep trying, right? I I think this too sounds like a really good future poll question, but like what album have you returned to over and over again in the hopes of trying to get it? Or is life too short for these sorts of exercises? I listen to the Miles Davis albums Pangea and Agartha at least twice a year. And I've been doing this for years, and I still find them really impenetrable, despite loving so much of Miles' music of this period, and despite these albums being, on paper at least, total toth catnip. Shit, maybe the next season will just be polls. Uh, Megan's choice is the Go-Between's 2005 album Oceans Apart, which she says was the first Go-Between's album she didn't buy after hearing it, but has come to appreciate it as a sleeper classic. See, I know people who rep hard for this late period go-betweens record, but aside from a few songs like uh, Boundary Rider, Born to a Family, this one never really struck me. I don't know why, but maybe I'll give it another go. John says David Bowie, uh, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, and The Spiders from Mars, despite being a fan at the time of The Beatles, The Who, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Yes, and Genesis, he says of his first impressions of Ziggy, quote, weird title, weird lyrics, weird looking, weird songs, and not nearly as cool as that title would seem to a geeky science fiction obsessed kid. Glam rock? I probably didn't realize how great this record is until 20 years later. John also mentioned Neil Young's Comes a Time, Smog's Red Apple Falls, and Wooden Wand's Blood Oaths of the New Blues. Well played, my friend. Well played. <laughs> Zach's choice here is Coltrane's Love Supreme. Uh, it's not my favorite Coltrane album, but I do like it very much. Um... I think one of the problems that arises when you combine uh, an established, if totally subjective, canon with unrestricted access to every song ever recorded is that there are these consensus picks in an artist's catalog, Um, even an artist with a discography as formidable and large as Coltrane's. And I think more and more in the age of lists and availability of everything, we, we tend to overlook the sort of stepping stones to greatness. And often we hear something that we're supposed to understand is groundbreaking and, quote, fingers, important, but we lack the context, so we don't hear it. My favorite example of this is how so many people I've met under 30 rep so hard for My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, but they haven't heard isn't anything. You know, as for Love Supreme, I found Ashley Kahn's excellent book on the album uh, a great way into not only the record's power, but also its context in terms of, like, Coltrane's career and his lifestyle and the extra musical things that were wielding a powerful influence over him at the time. So I wonder, Zach, what changed for you? Was it was it merely time or a specific context or place or time in your life? Nigel's contribution is Vergers by Sarah Devachi, uh, which he first dismissed as yet another overly serious drone contemporary classical release, of which there are many, 
but he came back to it a couple years later and everything clicked into place and he couldn't stop listening. Uh, he's now a huge fan of her work to the extent that he has the new 5-CD mega release on order. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, I like Sarah's work and have actually written about her, but I did not know about a 5-CD box, so thanks for the tip. Jim says, Angel Rat by Voivod. Jim says, Nothing Face was a letdown from Dimension Hatros, and when I first heard it was produced by the guy who produced my most despised band, Rush, and it was on a major label, well, the sellout just seemed on. So I listened to it like twice and traded it in. When Target Earth came out, I remember seeing a bunch of positive reviews, so I went back and listened to their whole catalog, and damn, I really liked Angel Rat. It was significantly better than I remembered, and I play it occasionally. Jim, we're on opposite sides of the Voivod fence, I think. Um, I, I think Dimension Hatros is where we can converge, because I think that's the first really good Voivod album. And the previous ones are just not my bag. I, I don't think I ever really loved Voivod until they uh, began sounding less metal somehow. I, I was 10 when Nothing Face came out, and I was very ready for Voivod. So I love that album, and I love the two that follow it too, but... Maybe inspired by this, I'll go back to the Noise Metal Blade era albums, because I never dug those records half as much as I do later Voivod. But for what it's worth, Voivod bassist Blackie uh, probably agrees with you. Uh, if I remember correctly, he was really unhappy with the direction of the band Circa Angel Rat, and that's why he left the band. Uh, I can talk about Voivod all day, so I'll stop. Uh, Travis says, I easily could slot many dead records into the new poll question, but for sure the one that I came back to and truly changed my mind about was the whole Europe 72. Didn't care, didn't get it, didn't miss an opportunity to tell folks unprompted. I was wrong, sorta. Thanks, Travis. Europe 72 is a classic gateway into the dead, uh, especially given that it's a composite of several different shows, sort of like a fantasy set thing. Uh, I could suggest a hundred other shows, but for now, I'll just add Vanita, Oregon, uh, 8.27.72. I think if you can listen to that show without catching the dead bug, it's probably safe to say the dead isn't for you. As for my own contribution to the poll, one album I returned to years later and completely reassessed was the Cocktoo Twins' Four Calendar Cafe, which was their first post-4AD album. I really disliked this record when I heard it. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous disappointment especially as a follow-up to Heaven or Las Vegas. But over the years, individual tracks have wormed their way into my brain one by one uh, until I just finally grew to love the whole record. And I started listening to it on its own terms and not in the context of the brilliant albums that preceded it. Others for me would be Neil's Sleeps with Angels, Mr. Bungle's California, Islands by King Crimson, D'Angelo's Brown Sugar, Aphex Twin Syro and the first four Dr. John records, which finally clicked for me this year despite two decades of fierce resistance to the man. Um, I have my very good buddy and bandmate Nick to thank for the conversion. He finally wore me down. Uh, Nick, by the way, provided the Toth Zone theme song, for those who don't know. Thanks, Nick. Thank you to everyone who contributed, and sorry to those I didn't get to. I really want to keep these episodes a digestible length, and... This poll question, while not as popular as previous ones, definitely seemed to inspire a lot of comments and reflections, and I really enjoyed reading all of those, so thank you all. For this episode, I wanted to revisit an article I wrote for NPR back in late 2017 called Too Much Music, A Failed Experiment in Dedicated Listening. 
I wanted to revisit the article because I think it fits the general theme of this podcast. And for those of you who haven't read it, it might make for a fun kind of experiment. Maybe some of you will enjoy conducting on your own. Um, I also wanted to revisit it because recent events have actually forced me into a position where I had to involuntarily reconduct the experiment. In Charlotte Zwerin's 1988 film Straight No Chaser, Thelonious Monk road manager Bob Jones tells a story about Monk appearing on a television show sometime in the late 50s. Monk is asked what kind of music he likes, to which he replies, all kinds. The interviewer, hoping for a gotcha moment, smugly asks, even country and western? To which the maverick pianist coolly deadpans, I said all kinds. Me too. It's been said that we're living in a golden age of music fandom. With a single click, we can access almost every piece of music ever recorded, and for less than it would cost to hear a single song on a jukebox in 1955. But I've begun to feel that my rabid consumption of music, when coupled with unprecedented access, has endangered my ability to process it critically. Now, streaming has become the primary way we listen to music. In 2016, Streaming surpassed both physical media and digital downloads as the largest source of recorded music sales, a trend that continues unabated. Obviously, there are plenty of valid complaints about a music world dominated by streaming. Among the many arguments musicians level against Spotify, for example, one that's typically repeated is that the artist is the only link in the food chain getting the proverbial shaft. Uh, this argument is often predicated on notions of economics, intellectual property, and ethics. Missing from a larger discussion is the radical idea that maybe it's the consumers who are being done the greatest disservice, and that this access bonanza may be cheapening the listening experience by transforming fans into file clerks and experts into dilettantes. I don't want my musical discoveries dictated by a series of intuitive algorithms any more than I want to experience Jamaica via an all-occlusive trip to Sandals. A few years ago, I started noticing that my brain was no longer retaining song titles. I struggled to recall the names of labels, compilations, and the members of bands I liked. Partly due to the ubiquity of music playlists, and partly due to supply outweighing even my most insatiable of demands, all music was becoming Muzak. In the interest of trying to experience it all, I was fast approaching a saturation point that was rendering me numb. As a person who still legitimately believes in music's potential to transcend life's banalities and disappointments and even its suffering, this was cause for concern. Like many people my age, I'm 42, I used to study and pore over the records and cassettes in my collection. I read lyric sheets and thank you lists. I knew every song title on every album, even the ones relegated to the deep recesses like Side 2, Track 4. Music was religion, mythology, and history rolled into one. The narratives became as important to me as the music itself. I studied lineages, developed affinities, obsessed over myths and minutia. If you're the type of person who has learned to identify a wine's year of harvest and country of origin with a single sniff of a cork, well, these nascent stages of obsession would be familiar. Even as the passage from adolescence to adulthood afforded less time to devote to this kind of mania, I continued to feverishly pursue new music, while most of my crate-digging peers and companions dropped off and developed other interests. I couldn't understand why a friend who loved one Sonic Youth album didn't want to own all the other Sonic Youth albums. 
I didn't understand people who claimed to love the Stones, but couldn't tell you what year Ron Wood replaced Mick Taylor. When someone told me they didn't really pay attention to lyrics, I would stare at them like they just dipped a Snickers bar into a jar of mustard. Rather than feeling alienated by such posers, I viewed them as further affirmation of my own uniqueness. I had nothing in common with people for whom music was merely an entertaining distraction from real life rather than a way of life itself. When you're young, few things keep you caring about a thing more than feeling like you're the only one who really cares about it. I know far more today about albums I hated in 1990 than I do about my favorite albums released last year. This fact troubled me and I wanted to do something about it. But first I needed to try to isolate when and why the way I listened to music changed in the first place. In the early 90s, I found myself drawn toward activities familiar to any music fanatic faced with a need to feed their habit. While still in high school, I founded several bands, began volunteering at the college radio station, and took a job at the local record store. I befriended other musicians, I wrote music reviews for various zines and newspapers, and I started my own label. It wasn't long before I became acquainted with the greatest fringe benefit of thankless and or low-paying jobs in the lower rungs of the music biz. Promotional copies. By the end of any given week, I had more music on my desk than someone only a century ago was able to hear in five lifetimes, and all without spending so much as a dollar. Then came the internet. As a listener, critic, label owner, veteran record store clerk, and musician, I have for many years been a vocal opponent of both Spotify and illegal downloading on economic, ethical, and aesthetic grounds, having witnessed firsthand their destructive force. But I'll confess that when peer-to-peer file sharing came into my life about 20 years ago, I was not immune to its siren song. Do you remember astronaut Dave Bowman's facial expression during the Stargate sequence of 2001 A Space Odyssey? That was me, around the time of the actual non-fictional 2001, discovering how easy it was to download mp3s. Shortly after we'd purchased our first desktop PC, my then-girlfriend downloaded the file-sharing program Audio Galaxy. In an intense, sleep-deprived delirium, I downloaded every private press, weirdo, garage, psych, folk, prog, punk record I'd ever heard about throughout my years of fanzine and catalog trawling and conversations with other musicians and collectors. I challenged Audio Galaxy by plugging into the search engine the most obscure records I could think of, but it couldn't be stumped. It was incredible. I missed a few shifts at the record store, definitely lost a few nights sleep. I remained indoors and had to be reminded to take regular meals. Only in retrospect can I see that my obsession with music, once the proud badge of the misfit, the precocious autodidact, was beginning to resemble something prosaic and common like an addiction to World of Warcraft or internet porn. When Audio Galaxy vanished, another peer-to-peer program, SoulSeek, took its place. All the while, I continued purchasing physical media several times a week, and that's a habit that continues to this day. But many of these treasures now remain neglected for months at a time. Soon came the practice of exchanging music with friends via Dropbox and You Send It. Podcasts and playlists, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, Music everywhere, music every day, music every minute. Tripping over unopened parcels of LPs and small towers of factory-sealed CDs, 
I recognized that I was becoming recklessly, needlessly acquisitive. I added up the time spent collating and organizing the glut of digital data on my hard drive, the untold hours maintaining a bulging collection of records, CDs, and cassettes. My collection was starting to feel like an albatross, and ironically was cutting into my recreational listening time. On New Year's Eve 2013, I made a resolution. Less stockpiling, more listening. Like most resolutions, this one was mostly forgotten by the first week of February. And then one day, a revelation. It occurred to me that it was no longer just difficult to hear all the music I'd amassed, but impossible. I mean literally, mathematically impossible. I calculated that if I lived, say, another 40 years, and spent every minute of those next 40 years, that's no sleeping, no eating, Listening to my collection of music, I'd be dead before I could make it all the way through. That means there are records I own today that I will definitely never hear again. This was a sobering thought. Now, what did I do after spending a few reflective moments reckoning with this bleak logic? I bought some records. I did so not as an ironic palliative to the grim calculation I just made, as narrative might dictate, On the contrary, I did so thoughtlessly, compulsively, simply because it was part of my routine. Clearly, I needed to make some changes. I concocted a bold experiment. For the entirety of 2017, I would listen to just one album a week. I decided to conduct this experiment because I romanticized the days of intimate close listening, of prolonged concentrated meditation with an art object and I sought to reactivate the ritual function of such encounters. I knew that tuning out and taking myself out of the loop of new releases, reissues, and fledgling artists would require some discipline, but I was sure the results would be worth the sacrifice. So here are the rules I set for myself, and here are the rules for you guys if you want to try this yourself. Number one, one album a week, no exceptions. Avoid other music whenever possible, but don't be so unyielding about it that you become insufferable to your friends and family. Number two, each week's album must be something you own in physical, hard copy form, because the experience must involve interaction with the object as a whole. You will read liner notes and lyrics and engage with the artwork. Become familiar with the names of band members. Learn the producer's name. Where was the album recorded? What time of year? Can you hear this in the music? Number three, You are free to listen to your weekly album in any context you desire. At least a few dedicated listeners should be considered mandatory, but you're also free to listen casually while doing other things if you like. It shouldn't feel like homework. Number four, the album can be old or new in any genre. Revisiting albums with which you are already somewhat familiar is encouraged. And lastly, number five, there is no minimum amount of listening time required. If you dislike an album so much that you'd sooner choose a week of quiet rather than endure it a second time, so be it. Enjoy the silence. For week one, I chose Autechre's 2010 album Oversteps, one of the British electronic duo's latter-day full-lengths with which I was a little less familiar, despite having purchased a copy of the CD on the day it was released. Now, choosing an Autechre album to kick off the experiment was not an arbitrary decision. My reasoning was that there was enough texture and nuance in Autechre's singular brand of sound design 
to retain my attention over the course of multiple listens. I also relished the irony of attempting to reacquaint myself with ostensibly primitive listening practices by listening to one of the most technologically advanced musical acts of all time. By the end of the week, I'd hoped to become so familiar with the machine-crunching, software-strangled squelches of oversteps that I'd be hearing them in my sleep. Making breakfast to Autechre wasn't as challenging as I feared. Though usually I prefer to listen to something a little more traditionally metronomic when engaging in menial tasks, I found Autechre's post-humanist din oddly conducive to omelette making. Oh, this was going to be fun! Things began to fall apart almost immediately. I checked my email. At this moment, it is barely 10 a.m., and already four messages in my inbox tempt me with potential musical serotonin blasts. A friend's compilation of NRBQ rarities. A link to a website where some benevolent maniac has painstakingly assembled a gray-folded-style playlist of all of the dead's best Dark Star improvisations, taken exclusively from the Europe 72 tour. A mailing list update from my go-to guy for all things blues and Zydeco, Adam Lore of 50 Miles of Elbow Room, full of enticing clips. And finally, news from the Peerless Aramite label announcing a new album by Chicago polymath Joshua Abrams, with a YouTube link to the album's first single. Without thinking, I click the link and listen. The song is great, and it makes me regret that I hadn't given Magnetoception, Abrams' previous album, the time or attention I'd given his other LPs, and I begin wondering where I'd filed that record. Oblivious to the folly unfolding before me, I locate my copy of Magnetoception, and just as I do, the mail arrives. It's a package from UK distro Juno Records containing a repress of the Screamers, Bangers, and Cosmic Synths compilation, released by the tiny Triassic Tusk label. Now, I've heard this comp already, of course, but not on vinyl, and I really want to listen to it. A good sense and willpower prevail, however, at least for now. I reason that, given the record's not insubstantial $35 price, seductive packaging, and wide range of artists and moods, it'll make a perfect week two album for the experiment. But I don't want to wait. I start to feel petulant. I'm an adult with free will and lots of free time. Why am I depriving myself of certain joy? Generally speaking, I've always struggled with delayed gratification and I eye the open parcel on the kitchen table the way one might eye a package of double-stuffed Oreos on the third day of a diet. I'll remind you that it is still day one of this experiment, and barely noon. The entire endeavor begins to feel masochistic and trivial. Could it be that I'm just trying to talk myself out of continuing? Am I a deep listener, or merely another trophy-hunting collector? I'd always consider myself the former. So why do I feel, while I'm listening to music I enjoy, that I'm missing out on something else? Why does direct engagement with a work of art suddenly feel like a fruitless attempt at multitasking? One thing is certain. I don't want to listen to Autechre anymore, at least not today. I want to listen to this LP I just received, this compilation of records played in the early years of the Moonhop Club in Scotland. I want to hear not only Nigerian disco outsider Steve Monit's irresistibly bizarre Only You, but also the unlikely marriage of gnarly garage fuzz and samba that is Heymina by The Jones, and the darkly funky nuclear cautionary tale of Last Chance to Dance by African Dreamland. But I restrain myself. More new messages arrive in my inbox. 
A songwriter whose album I may be producing later in the year has sent me three new demos for me to listen to and comment on. Another friend emails to remind me he's in town this week to play a gig, and he hopes to see me. My wife proposes a late lunch at our favorite neighborhood Ethiopian restaurant. It's a restaurant called Nile in Richmond, Virginia. One of the reasons we like Nile so much is because its young proprietors are always playing the most incredible music, and despite my lifelong aversion to piped-in music in public places, I make a small exception for any establishment that has a favorite Augustus Pablo album. The food's also amazing, by the way. Today they're playing something unusual I've never heard before. Leah notices it too, and before I can ask her to shazam it, she is already hoisting her phone above her head toward the mounted speakers, hurriedly placing a finger over her lips to make the universal sign of, be quiet a second. Turns out it's something called the Lafayette Afro Rock Band. I make a note to check it out later. I begin to really understand why recovering addicts isolate themselves from old neighborhoods and old friends in order to stay clean. A friend once floated a theory that I've grappled with ever since. She claimed that we only ever really love 10 albums, and we spend the rest of our listening lives seeking facsimiles of those 10, pursuing the initial rush, so to speak. At the time, I argued with her, because I didn't want that to be true. But even as I protested, I began recalling how many times I compulsively added to cart an item, whenever some savvy, vinyl-hustling mountebank deployed the phrase velvetsy or Royal Trucks-ish, and how many times I'd bought reissues promising the, quote, holy grail of private press proto-doom, only to discover tepid bar rock that sounded like a warmed-over bad company. Our individual dragons may vary, Sabbath or Coltrane or Beatles or Beefheart, but we're all chasing them. It's been three days, and I've listened to Oversteps one and a half times once while making breakfast, and once in the car while running some errands, during which time I managed to get through about four songs. I have yet to give the album my undivided attention. By now I have cheated on Oversteps several times by listening to other music, though it must be said far less of it than usual. Maybe it'll just take a few weeks to adjust to my resolution. My immediate plan is to commune with Oversteps with a smoke and my good headphones. But Leah finishes her work early and descends the stairs, breaking my reverie. Before I can even consider subjecting her to oversteps, she's already at the Riga and reaching for Eric Dolphy's Outward Bound. I don't protest. Man, this is a terrific record, I think. One I might slightly prefer to his other out-themed records, Out There and Out to Lunch. Who's the pianist on this date again? Oh right, Jackie Byard. I should buy more of his records. I make a mental note, still somehow unaware of this ridiculous caricature I have become. I go to bed without having made it back to Oversteps. Four days in, I resign myself to the fact that my experiment is a complete failure, and there is no point in continuing it. My willpower collapses absolutely. My desire to hear Autechre, anything by Autechre, is gone. I admit defeat by listening to the Screamers, Bangers, and Cosmic Synths comp while cleaning my office. Now, why did the experiment fail? Well, for one thing, it failed because it was unpleasant, and I didn't want to do it anymore. But more importantly, I couldn't help feeling almost immediately that I had already reached a conclusion. Modern life, with all of its informational density, has rendered filtering out the noise virtually impossible. Now, maybe if I'd hold myself up in a remote cabin and attempted the experiment in isolation... Uh, it might have yielded different results, but short of a Twilight Zone, Burgess Meredith sort of scenario, 
such a setting would merely be a simulation and would thus defeat the purpose, not to mention almost certainly result in recidivism the moment I reunited with my iPod. The hasty abandonment of the experiment also forces me to confront something about myself that should have been obvious all along. If, at the age of 11, I had been granted access to not just the one Creator album I listen to every day, but everything Creator ever recorded, I would not have hesitated for a second before mainlining every demo, bonus track, and live version available. The notion that there is something to be gained by choosing this type of scarcity, by actively inviting a kind of regression, suddenly seems pretty stupid. It dawns on me that I've made this choice not for reasons of spiritual asceticism or worldly good, but nostalgia, the last refuge of the middle-aged sad sack. I begin feeling like a Civil War reenactor, or the man at the Renaissance Fair who scolds you for wearing a watch, the very embodiment of everything about a 40-something that baffles a 20-something. And maybe I'm being too hard on myself. When asked in a 2009 interview with the Wall Street Journal whether he thought the epic novel was still relevant to modern readers, author Cormac McCarthy said, the indulgent 800-page books that were written 100 years ago are just not going to be written anymore, and people need to get used to that. If you think you're going to write something like The Brothers K or Moby Dick, go ahead. Nobody will read it. I don't care how good it is or how smart the readers are. Their intentions, their brains, are different. He may be right. As long as we try to maintain the Sisyphean task of trying to experience everything, our brains, unable to adapt and forever lagging behind exponential technological progress, will continue to struggle. Computer power is still doubling every 18 months, notes cryptographer and technology writer Bruce Schneier, while our species' brain size has remained constant. I wonder if my experiences in music consumption have rendered me less assimilable than some of my peers to this pivotal, transitional, and it must be said, exciting period. My arrogance was not in believing I was immune to the way our relationship to music has been forever altered by technology and the occult market forces that engender it, but that I somehow possess the ability to transcend it by making myself immune to it. I try to recall the last novel I read that was longer than 400 pages. It's been a while. At least I'm in good company. Of the many self-described film buffs I know, none have braved Christoph Kozlowski's acclaimed Decalogue, a 10-hour series of episodes often cited as one of the greatest films of the 20th century. Of the dozens of Bob Dylan fanatics with whom I'm acquainted, I can think of only one who has braved the entirety of The Basement Tapes Complete, a box set containing a staggering 138 tracks from those famed sessions. Maybe it's time for new resolutions and new experiments. My goal going forward, if I am to retain my sanity, seems clear enough. To try to avoid imposing fixity on an increasingly fluid world, and to surrender in good faith to the flow, even when I struggle to find good reasons to embrace it. Less stockpiling, more listening, sure. But I don't believe I'll ever pass a stack of dusty CDs in the goodwill and not feel a little pang of excitement, an insatiable curiosity, a compulsive need to rifle, touch, and understand. My old behavior is simply too enjoyable, too integral to my identity to give up completely. My dad once challenged me on what he perceived as the senselessness of my record-buying habit, and I explained to him that the happiest feeling in the world for me was walking into a record store with a few dollars to spend. Few things have ever made me feel as good, and I suspect few things ever will. 
There is in any obsession a kind of helplessness, but as addictions go, this one has always seemed to me pretty harmless. The modern world, however, has issued a new and terrifying challenge. Try and keep up. The diluvial nature of modern media leaves us little time to pause. The challenge, then, is to cultivate the patience and the discipline necessary to engage more deeply than the modern world allows. Just because we're flooded doesn't mean we have to drown. Now, that was written in 2017. A few weeks ago, I accidentally lost my entire iTunes library. Long story, but it was 66.3 gigabytes of music I'd collected over the past six years, gone with two careless clicks. Now, I should clarify that very few things I lost are irreplaceable. Uh, I have CD backups of a lot of that music and an external hard drive I backed up at the end of the year with a lot of other stuff, so my first instinct was to try to repopulate my entire iTunes library. But then, for whatever reason, I didn't. Maybe I was lazy. Or maybe I subconsciously understood that this was an opportunity to prune. I grabbed the six CDs I happened to have in the car, and the two CDs and two LPs with download codes I purchased that week, which were still on my desk. This gave me ten albums, and I imported these and only these. It was a good combination of albums. Five I knew very well, two I knew pretty well or slightly well, and three I'd never heard before. Now, perusing an iTunes library is obviously nothing like rifling through a stack of records or a shelf of CDs. I don't know about you, but often when I go looking for a record I want to hear, I'll serendipitously find something else during the search and listen to that instead. I'll think like, oh, I haven't heard that in a while, you know? That doesn't really happen with iTunes, at least not for me, because my, my previous habit was to just begin scrolling from the top of the alphabet to determine the day's soundtrack and I would rarely get past the letter B. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to AHA's Scoundrel Days and Hunting High and Low and A.R. Kane's 69, simply because they were the first things in my iTunes library. There are entire albums in my iTunes library that despite having owned them for over half a decade, I have never heard. This despite a meticulous and obsessive collection of playlists in my now former iTunes library, with titles like Assess Now, Assess Soon, Albums Assess Soon, Listen Soon, etc. When would I get to these exactly, while amassing new music almost every day? Now, with this accidental deletion, a burden was lifted. My choices were limited, and I could have never anticipated the strong feeling I had. Relief. Even elation. Because I listened to a broad range of music, like, like my man Monk, my particular fear of missing out is really pronounced, uh, but unfortunately this has resulted in more quantity listening than quality listening. So my experiment, which had failed back in 2017, was now thrust upon me. From the car I grabbed Godflesh's Selfless, The Moves Shazam, Insides by Orbital, The Idiot by Iggy Pop, Split by the Groundhogs, and a live Grateful Dead show from the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco in July 1976. The new batch was comprised of things I had just purchased. The new Teenage Fan Club album, Bobby Timmons Trio's In Person, English prog rock group Eggs the Polite Force, and an album called Old Hat by a group called Uncle Dog, one of several bands featuring a singer I really like named Carol Grimes. Since the inadvertent loss of my iTunes library, I've been listening to little else than these 10 albums, and I found that even the albums in this batch that I thought I knew so well 
have been revealing like new little corners, and I've been noticing small details I never noticed before. And I've been enjoying listening to them all multiple times in a row, which is something I tend not to do much these days. Now, I may change my mind about this, so don't hold me to it, but I think my approach going forward will be to listen to these just until I don't feel like hearing them anymore, and at least for a while, and then replace them with a new batch of 10 or a dozen records. I can always reload these albums later, and this way I'm not a slave to the self-imposed chore of having to reckon with dozens of playlists or feeling guilty about a towering pile of music I'm ignoring as if merely listening to music was something I needed to do. I still have the fear of missing out, hardcore, but I've begun to recognize more and more that this is an unwinnable fight. An unintended benefit is that my brain and my ears have achieved a feat I thought impossible. They've slowed down. And my six-year-old Mac, that's running a lot faster. Thank you for listening. We'll be wrapping up Season 2 next month, so please do send comments or questions about any music-related topic, and I'll try to answer or respond on the season finale, which will be a sort of catch-all, free-for-all, maybe disastrous kind of episode. For our final poll question of the season... What is your favorite example of non-diegetic music in a TV show or movie? Non-diegetic meaning music that is not part of the narrative structure. Music the characters can't actually hear. Sound whose origin is from outside the story world, but is used as a soundtrack. But let's not include actual soundtracks. Music that was commissioned or made specifically for a movie or TV show. Because there's millions of those, and many good ones. I want your nominations for best use of a piece of music that had already existed independent of the film or TV show and why you think it worked so well in a particular scene. That's all for now. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Thank you to my new patrons. Uh, If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month. Uh, 28 episodes in and we're still ad free so let's try to keep it that way uh, your generous patronage definitely helps you can also reach me at the zone at outlook.com happy spring everyone see you next episode this is the toth zone <laughs>